Um, scripture readings for today. First, Isaiah 45, 5 through 6. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. Mark 6, 7 through 13. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Or, yeah, that's right. Okay. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Thank you, Grace. Well, we press on in our series in Miracles in Mark today. We are in Mark chapter 6. It's hard to believe that we already are almost halfway through our series here. Uh, and we are looking at extraordinary grace for the ordinary life. Uh, in the series, I hope that you're capturing this picture of that because of who Jesus is, we find ourselves in light of who Jesus is. And today we see something that, that we haven't seen yet, and that's a miracle being performed by someone not named Jesus. Uh, and here, like every miracle narrative that we've studied so far, is that the miracle is, is pointing to a reality that's greater and deeper than the action of the miracle itself. It's, it's revealing something about what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ what Christ is doing through his disciples. Um, so before we begin our study today, could we pray together? Father, uh, guide the preaching of your word to reach the hearts and the heads of, of your people. Let us be disciples who rely on you for everything and go in confidence, knowing we will do the work of your kingdom, following our great Jesus in this process. We pray that your spirit would be with the preaching of your word in your son's name. Amen. All right, so uh, we're talking about the foundations of discipleship today. And we, we're talking about this because of the extremes that we, we often see in the Christian faith and what this text is, is trying to resolve. Uh, one extreme of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is that we are extremely passive. You know, we have a let go and let God. Jesus, take the wheel, right? We, 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 we have a theology that since God is in control, which is correct, uh, we then take that correct doctrine and apply it in the wrong ways. Uh, we don't have to participate in anything. Uh, God is sort of the all-star player on the basketball team. All you have to do is give him the rock and watch what's, what's going to happen, right? And that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That's, that's sort of one extreme. Uh, and when we do that, we're picking and choosing verses that relate to God's sovereignty and his omnipotence and his omniscience and, and using it to actually justify the sin of apathy and disobedience. Uh, that's not what it means to be a disciple. Uh, the other extreme is the mindset that being a disciple means that it all falls on you to save people, that it all falls on you 
to do the work of the kingdom. Uh, God's up in heaven. He's sitting up on the throne, and he's making you go run around and save as many people as possible, do as many good things as you can, and he's just waiting at the end of your life to give you a report card telling you of how good you did, right? And, and that's taking, again, trying to take the verses in Scripture seriously about being fruitful, about faith and works, and that we are go to make disciples of all nations, but then we use it to justify the sin of not apathy and disobedience, but to justify burnout and bitterness and overextending ourselves and uh, having a savior complex. Uh, this is also what it doesn't mean to be a disciple. And so the question of how Jesus wants his disciples to reach a lost world is important for us to answer today because it relates to what the disciples' foundations are for reaching uh, the cities that, um, and the villages, I should say, that Jesus was sending them out to. And it, and it asks us the question here today, what is your foundation for discipleship? What is Christ doing for his disciples? So we're going to examine three things that Jesus is doing here in this text, and he's also doing in us as his disciples. First, uh, Jesus sends us. Uh, two, Jesus provides for us. And three, uh, Jesus brings his kingdom through us. So uh, let's examine this text and get right to it. Let's talk about how Christ sends us. Uh, now, Jesus, at this point in Mark's gospel, has just returned home to Nazareth, and surprise, surprise, Right, his hometown, he's being rejected by others in the community because they can't believe that this former carpenter, this, this kid that they saw grow up in their village, is all of a sudden now a rabbi, a well-respected one. Even Jesus can't be seen for more than who he used to be and who he used to grow up with. So the reason why your parents still treat you like a child, even though you're 37 and you're about to have a mortgage and, you can, and they still try to clothe you and feed you even though you're a grown man, right? Uh, that's biblical, all right? Uh, Jesus went through the exact same thing. Uh, but now Jesus is going around the villages of Nazareth teaching and he sends his disciples in his name to go. And Jesus is sending his disciples in, in two ways. He's, he sends them out in community, and he sends them out in authority, as verse 7 is showing for us here. And in doing so, he's revealing something about the character of discipleship that is important for us to realize. Jesus sends these disciples out in community, two by two, in pairs. And in doing so, he's revealing individual, cultural, and cosmic reasons for doing so. Individually, discipleship and following Jesus and being sent by Jesus is never a solo mission. Uh, and Jesus never intended it to be as such. So the phrase, you know, it's just me and my relationship with God. Um, you know, I don't need community. I don't need the church. It, it, that's actually more of a modern invention designed to make believe that we can have Jesus and that Jesus can send us apart from the calling of the body of Christ. And even in the commissioning of the disciples here, we see it is not the case. Practically, traveling in pairs protected the disciples from dangers of traveling alone, allowed for the gifts of each disciple to be complemented by one another, and provided company and conversation throughout the journey. Uh, culturally, the common practice in the Mosaic Law, where the disciples would have been ministering, where the truth of the testimony is to be established by the uh, mouth of two witnesses. This is Deuteronomy 
So in other words, uh, these disciples were going out. They knew in order for their message to be received by a Jewish population, they wanted to exemplify that. So again, here's contextualization, obedience to the word. So the credibility of the testimony of Christ is based upon Jesus sending out his disciples in a way that it would have been received. We don't do evangelism. We don't do discipleship in a quote-unquote neutral cultural background. We're all influenced by the cultures that we grew up in. Cosmically, Jesus sending us, sends out his disciples, is following the pattern of God to multiply and have dominion. This goes back to Genesis 1 and the cultural mandate. The father sending his son into the world, and the son sending out his disciples into the world to be fruitful and multiply his works throughout Nazareth. So, in other words, what we see cosmically here is that God's kingdom is always about expansion. It's never about contraction. So we see this need for community when Christ sends us out, right? In every facet, individual, cultural, cosmic. But how will the people know that these disciples are Jesus' disciples? And this is why Christ sends us out in authority. He sends them out with authority with the very things that would oppose their work and their ministry. Uh, The unclean spirits, the enemy that's been presented here in Mark over and over again. The forces that would oppose their mission, the disciples would have control over. They are equipped by God to fight the things that would cause their mission to fail, to be distracted. So the true disciples of God walking out would have been sent by the authority and power that Jesus Christ is giving his followers. Now, the question that should be coming to your mind right now, and you may be asking Jesus is, Jesus, is this the wisest thing to do right now in your ministry? I mean, by every category of what we know about the disciples so far, they are not ready at all to be doing any of this. Jesus' ministry, if you remember, from beginning to end was about three years, roughly, give or take. And that meant at this this stage of Jesus' ministry, the disciples would have been with him for way less than that period of time of three years. They haven't even finished what would be the minimum requirements for graduation in terms of timeline. And they certainly at this point wouldn't have even demonstrated the basic grasp of maturity of how to understand Jesus and his ministry. I mean, after all, would you trust an undergraduate student who didn't even graduate yet to perform medical surgery. So you might be looking at this and going on, why in the world is Jesus sending out his disciples? What is Jesus doing here? Now, even as I'm framing this question, you'll realize I'm doing so with maybe the intention of revealing idolatries of our modern-day Christianity today. We love competency. And and look, there's nothing wrong with an appreciation for competency. Uh, We all have different gifts, biblically. We all want those gifts to be used effectively. There's nothing wrong for wanting a job to be done well or a mission that has clear goals and objectives. It's it's biblical to seek out excellence and to honor the Lord in our work. But but competency can never be the cause of Christ's calling. Competency cannot be the cause of of Christ's calling. If competency is the reason why you are sent, then you will only do the things that God has told you to do when you feel like you can do it without him. The danger of competency is that you really, though you say we don't, though intellectually in your head you know you don't, you are really living functionally as though the gospel was earned through your works. And two lies 
And two strands of lies can come out of this. One lie is we say, you know, God, I will only go and do what you say and be sent when I'm capable enough to do it. All right? You'll only go where it feels comfortable to do ministry, which is strangely why so many churches are usually planted in affluent suburban communities as opposed to hard places. But that's for another sermon for another day. You'll stop believing that Christ is behind the work that you're doing, the family that you are loving, the school you're studying at, the neighborhood you wish to change, and you believe that it's your gifts that make things right for the kingdom of God. So one lie is we say, it's only when I'm fully ready. I'll make that, and I'll make that determination when I'm ready. Then I will go and live for you. The great lie that we all believe is that if we can be competent enough to obedient God, then God will use me to change the situation we're in. Maybe you're not there. Maybe you're in this other lie that we tell ourselves about competency. And you're saying this. Uh, surely God isn't calling me to go. I just don't have what it takes. I'm not good enough. I'm not capable. I could never make an impact for the kingdom of God because I'm not strong. I'm not outspoken. I'm not an extrovert. I'm not an introvert. I'm not hospitable. I have no boundaries. I'm too selfish. I'm too prideful. I'm too greedy. I'm too shy. I'm too outgoing. We make all the excuses in the world of why we aren't ready. Thinking it's humility when actually couched underneath that, it's actually another form of pride. Both of these lies, I'm too competent, I'm not competent enough, betrays the very thing that Christ was sent here on the earth to do. So he takes our false sense of accomplishment, our false sense of inadequacy, and he calls that sin. And then proceeds to take all that sin upon himself and replace that with his perfect righteousness that he gives to us when he dies on the cross. And in his resurrection, he shows that, that, that Christ is greater than all the false sense of how you evaluate yourself and your readiness. Because Christ is in you. You see, the, here's how tricky these lies are. They're partially true. You are competent for the task, but it's not because of you. It's because of Christ that is in you. Likewise, the other lie, you are completely inadequate for the task, but only if it were up to you, because it's ultimately Christ's work in you to complete it. He's making you into a new creation. So in other words here, do you see? Jesus sends out the disciples in both community and authority no matter where they were, because he makes sure that we're not alone. Both horizontally with people who walk together with Jesus and vertically equipping us with the power and authority that Christ gives to us in the gospel. Okay, so what does this mean? What it means is that we need to consider where Christ is calling City of Hope now, today, where he is sending us to do Christ's kingdom work. We are not waiting for some far-off mystical time where God will use this church later when we're stable, when we're ready, when we've got all of our systems figured out, okay? Uh, we are following the call of Jesus because, we, why? Because you will never personally be in that perfect place that you imagine yourself you will be before you have that conversation with a friend about Jesus. You will never be knowledgeable enough in whatever field or job that Jesus is calling you to serve until you jump in. You do not need to have a master's degree in social services in order to help the poor and the needy and the orphan and the widow. G Christ, G sorry. Christ has given you an authority through the Holy Spirit's testimony using you and this church 
to glorify his kingdom. But it's not just that, that he sends us. We see here in this transitioning to our next point, uh, Jesus provides for us. And how does he provide for us? If Christ sends us out in community and in authority, Christ provides for us both in humility and dependency. Christ's calling would have seemed daunting enough for these disciples. But this next stage of this would have been seen as Christ sort of upping the ante. Christ making the disciples' life even more difficult. He tells his disciples to take nothing for their journey. Not a staff. Well, except a staff, I should say. Sandals and just one tunic for the journey. They are restricted from carrying things that would have made them self-sufficient. Bread to feed them. A bag for materials. No money to pay for the things to sustain them. They are instead commanded to have the peoples in the villages that they go to house them and take care of their needs and trust that this would happen. So the humility that comes when we follow Christ's call is that we are placing ourselves in situations where we do not know how we will live in the lifestyle that God is calling us to live in. Uh, There will be disruptions. Standards of living that the Christian might be called into that change the ways we're comfortable in living and processing life. And Jesus is telling us that those dependencies only will restrict the calling that Christ is calling us to live. To be a follower of Jesus might be the most dangerous thing you do because it might call you to surrender what you consider to be a safe and easy life. Now before we dive into what Jesus is saying here, we must be clear that Jesus isn't advocating here for some kind of aesthetic minimalism lifestyle as some have taken this passage to be. Uh, Some believe that there is this thought that, you know, being a true disciple of Christ means essentially living like a wandering homeless hermit. Uh, That is not the case here because he calls different people to be in different places and to have different needs met. I mean, look at Paul's ministry where he does indeed ask for financial compensation and material support. Look at the early church uh, receiving gifts and donations and land and things like that to fund its mission and feed its people. So this is just a unique case where Jesus is asking his disciples in the first step of their calling to him to depend upon the grace of God going with them to wherever God is leading them. That in their humility and trusting that God is equipping them, they must also trust that Jesus is going to provide in ways that they cannot know or cannot see right away. Now, for all of you type A planner individuals here in this room right now, including myself, I'm guilty of this, you're probably starting to twitch like crazy because Jesus is living out your worst nightmare in the form of these commandments. Jesus, like, no spreadsheet, right? No, no budget, no clothing, no food. How are, how are you going to make this happen for us? How in the world could you make this calling even possible? We can't proclaim your gospel if we're dead. All of the dream killers in this room right now are just waiting to pounce on Jesus, right? This might be the thought that the disciples are facing, but Jesus' command to the disciples clearly pointed to the reality that every disciple of Jesus must face. Dependency on Jesus must take the highest priority in order for the ministry of the gospel to go forward. I'll say that again. Dependency on Jesus must take the highest priority in order for the ministry of gospel to move forward. 
And so by leaving his disciples without these provisions in which they could place their hopes on, Jesus is saying to them and he's saying to us, do you trust in my provision? Do you trust my calling? Are you more secure with your things than you are in Christ? And in doing so, will you find that you are actually, in placing your dependency on Christ, you are actually in the safest place in the world that you could possibly be. The calling of Christ is stepping out into his provision, which is greater than any security that you can make for yourself. How does Christ provide this security for his disciples? He does this with the expectation of the generosity of others. Once again, for the second time in our verses, we see the necessity of community baked into Christ's provision in the form of Christian hospitality. Notice here that Jesus is saying that hospitality is not a guarantee. That the message of Christ won't necessarily be welcomed by everyone, but for those that do, Christ is telling his disciples, cherish that hospitality that they give you. Jesus was warning the disciples to stay in the houses that would first welcome them. Not, not because Jesus is saying, like, oh, good, you found someone. Just stay there and, you know, be a freeloader. No, that's not what he's saying. Uh, culturally, at the time, the disciples would have been tempted to shop around to other parts of the village. Once you've found one place and you've sort of seen the village, you know where the better accommodations are. And culturally, it was typical for people to bounce around, sort of to move their way up to better housing and better accommodations. Jesus is saying, nuh-uh, you're not going to do that. Instead, with humility, you're going to take whatever is provided for you, and you are going to respect and welcome their hospitality to you. The disciples' trust comes in the form that God will provide people along the way to sustain us, to keep us grounded in the mission ahead, that these are the people that we should ride with, that we aren't looking over to the next hill, the next horizon, the, green and, uh, the, the, the grass is greener mentality that we're moving forward as the community of faith together. In other words, the calling of Jesus' disciples must rid ourselves of the need that we will only take care of ourselves and we sh that we are afraid to ask for help. We need to depend on one another. I am in the biggest danger of this than any other individual or person in this room. I, I absolutely hate burdening people with my problems. I, I think in many ways it's a cultural thing uh, that I grew up with. Uh, I, but I'm also a very private person. I, I hate asking for needs to be provided if I can do it myself because I'm often scared of what that would mean. And I often know the position that I'm in as, as a church leader. I've seen church leaders and pastors abuse their congregations, generosity for the sake of their own comfort, and, and I, I want to resist against those things. But, but one of the dangers that has happened with this mentality of burdening others is that I've swung to the opposite place where I don't think I need help. And Jesus is explicitly telling me, you, all of us, his disciples, not only will you need help, you will have to expect it in order to fulfill the mission that Christ is granting you. And to not expect help is to be a place of unbelief. Now, that's, that, that's going to hit hard for us, right? Uh, we want to be self-sufficient. We don't want anyone's help. And Christ is saying here, you must depend upon it. 
Trusting in the calling of Jesus is to trust that he will provide people to come alongside you for the journey. But this also would prevent in Jesus' disciples and their mission, as would us today as well, is the feeling of pride that we are somehow able to do Jesus' ministry without Jesus' provision. And the Ark of the Bible retells this story of pride over and over again, and we should have gotten the point by the time you reach the New Testament, but we don't, do we? Israel and the cycle of sin and judges, the pride of self-sufficiency, everyone does what is right in their own minds. The story of the kings from 1 Samuel all the way to 2 Chronicles, uh, Peter, Jesus' disciples, and his continual claims that he would never deny Christ, Paul in his life before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. All of them tell the story again and again and again and again of the downfall of self-sufficiency. The downfall that you can do it on your own. That you can heal yourself. That you can better yourselves. The downfall believing that we are strong enough to resist temptation or avarice. It's only when we are fully dependent on the provision of God coming through his body, the church, and believers in faith that we will fulfill this calling that Christ has before us. Um, maybe an analogy would help here. Um, anyone in this room own a dog? Uh, raise your hand. If Are all my dog owners here? Okay, all right, good. All right, all right. few of you in this room. Uh, cat owners might understand this uh, depending on how needy your cat is. Uh, cockroach owners... Jackson and I, I've never owned a cockroach, so you can tell me how dependent they are, right? But um, uh, dog owners here, just hear me out, all right? I, I have this five-year-old golden doodle named Nova. Um, he's basically just a big giant ball of fluff that likes to dig through our trash uh, and punch us in the face with his paw and jump on our bed at random times. Uh, he's the best. We love him. Uh, but while we were living in South Carolina, uh, we would go to this beach called the Isle of Palms, uh, and they would have this thing called off-leash dog hours. Uh, and so uh, in the morning, we would get to the beach, and we would let go of the leash and just let him run on the beach, and he would go nuts, right? He, he's like a big, like, uh, he, everything sticks to him. So he, like, rolls around in the sand, and he's just got, like, sand clinging on him all over the place, right? But he, he runs away from us, right? And he doesn't get very far running away from us, about, like, 30, 40 yards down the line, when all of a sudden, spatially and just in his mind, I don't know dog psychology, but, but he doesn't know where he is anymore, okay? And he's completely lost, and he realizes that mom and dad are gone, all right? And suddenly he has this mindset of, oh my gosh, I am completely abandoned, right? What is the meaning of existence, right? How can I survive in this cold and desert wasteland, right? I need to run back to my mom and dad, right? And so with the same ferocity that he felt when he was running away from us, thinking it was good to make it on his own, he, he finally catches a glimpse of us, and he runs with that same ferocity back to us, completely sandy because he's a glorified dog mop, and leaps into our arms, and he's like, oh my gosh, I needed you so much. Where would I be without you on this beach? And, and, and that happens like 60 times over a three-mile walk, right? right? Time and time again, Nova remembers that he needs us to navigate where he's going. And, you know, as a dog owner, like, you just delight in this, right? Because, you know, you have to say, oh, my dog loves me. He's coming back to me, right? He wants to be with me, right? Um, and, you know, I sometimes wonder if this is just a small picture of the story of our lives as well. Uh, we run away from God thinking that we're good on our own. We have no idea where we are. 
And in those moments, we realize God isn't there and we run back to him because we're completely lost in the dark without him. And we do that over and over and over and over again in our lives. And God's just walking on that beach there with us. And he's delighting every time we come back to him in repentance, waiting for the day that we finally realize that we can't go anywhere without him. So the lessons that the disciples are going to have to learn is to lean upon the Lord primarily and secondary causes through other people to trust that they will provide exactly what they need because Christ has sent them and he is providing for them. But the greater reality that's present here is bringing about this, our last point here today, is that Christ is bringing about the kingdom of God through his disciples. Look at the last two verses in our text today. What do you see happening with these unprepared, untrained, immature disciples that haven't fully understood Jesus yet? They're doing the work of the kingdom that Christ is doing. They're, they're proclaiming the gospel. They're, they're performing the exact same kind of miracles that Jesus did in the earlier five chapters. They're echoing the future reality of the restoration of the kingdom and what heaven will look like by healing the sick, by proclaiming good news. The, the authority that Jesus gave them is living and it's active. The provision of God to feed his disciples is happening right before their very eyes. They were not only sent, they were not only provided for, but their ministry and work is fruitful and effective. The miracle of this passage, yes, the disciples are given the same power that Christ had and their message being received, but maybe the miracle underneath the surface is that all of this is effective for a group of disciples that had no business being effective. Church. This passage should inspire us to consider that each and every single one of us, by the extraordinary way that Christ has given you his Holy Spirit, is a miracle through the grace of Christ that has been poured out into your lives, that you were once dead, spiritually dead in your sins, and have been brought back to life spiritually through the blood of Christ. That though you lived once in the darkness of your sins, Christ has pulled you up from the miry clay and set your feet upon the rock. That your addictions are being sanctified. That you're becoming more and more evident of his grace working in your life. That you are no longer desire sins in the same capacity that you used to. And more and more and more in awe of what the cross has done for you. You see, I, people, I hear people say all the time to me, Man, it would have been so amazing to be a disciple in Jesus' age because, yeah, then you would have some like supernatural forces at your disposal for gospel ministry. I mean, wouldn't that have been so easy? Wouldn't that have been so great, they say. Uh, but the reality is the same God who equipped his apostles for this unique apostolic ministry in an apostolic way, he, he doesn't leave his church without power as well. And it might not be the apostolic power to heal or to cast out demons, but you know what it might be? It might be the power for the compassion for the lost. It might be the power to cast, not, might not be the power to cast out demons, but it might be the power to sacrifice for others in a way that Christ could only provide through working through you. We may not have the big M miracles today in the sense that it was signifying the early church and its authority of God, but we do have the power of the ordinary means of grace that God has given to us. The preaching of the word of God. The prayers of his people. 
the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and baptism. The power to pray for one another. These graces do extraordinary things that have power and are effective here today. I mean, think about in the, the ways in which this ordinary ways of God's power working provided for us even just today, this morning. We have to trust that all of you who signed up to volunteer to set up all these chairs actually showed up, right? right? Now, I'm not going to use the word miracle, but that's pretty close, right? Okay? Not only that, right, you, we, ha- we have to believe that in gathering here today, God is going to use uh, this imperfect sermon, our imperfect singing, our sinful hearts, and he's going to use that to bless others around us. He's going to use that to bless your life. He's going to use that to remind you of the grace that you have received through Christ. He's going to use you coming out from here for the advancement of the kingdom of God. That, in many ways, is a power that we often don't reflect on because it just seems like ordinary life. But I tell you, the more that you look back in these little ordinary moments that God has worked in, you will see the power of God at work in ways that is transformative and healing. We believe, as every age of the church has, that these simple things would promote the greatest advance for society, for the world, our families. That this gathering here, that the power of God working through the church would provide the greatest humanitarian works that the world has ever known, and it has. Provided the greatest civil advances that the world has ever known, and it has. Provided the greatest movements for justice and peace that the world has ever known, and it has. The proclamation of the true gospel brings about the flourishing of God's people and their neighborhoods and this world. The miracle of this passage is that the disciples get to be an active part of bringing about his kingdom. Francis Grimke, uh, one of the greatest preachers of the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, he was a former slave who later became one of the first African-American Presbyterian ministers. He preached at one congregation for 50 years of his life. And he knew the power of preaching to fight against the evil and sins of his day. Rather than resign the, the big issues of his day, of racial injustice, alcoholism, and other issues, as ancillary, oh, you know, the gospel can't change those things. Let's just focus on the individual soul. He never believed in that kind of minimalist gospel. He was not just a bystander of God's power disciple, but God would believe that God would use him and the ordinary means of grace to bring about the power of the kingdom to a world in need. In his meditations on preaching, he reminded his people this, if we could have that quote up there on the screen. Uh, the main business of the church therefore, is not only to win men to Christ, but particularly to make them such in spirit, in temper, in life, as to make them powers for good, centers of life-giving and ennobling influences. For Grimke, proclamation of the gospel could only be real and realized if the kingdom of God was overflowing through the people the gospel ministered to. If the gospel has no effect in shaping your lives for the advancement of his kingdom, then maybe we have to ask ourselves, has the gospel made an effect on us at all? City of Hope, I pray that this message would excite you as you consider what the disciples' mission was in that small town of Nazareth. That a complete dependency on God would lead you to believe 
that Christ is providing for you, that he is sending you, irrespective of how you view your readiness, and that he will use you for the advancement of the kingdom of God in every area of your life, and that you would do, as Christ boldly promised, greater works than he would. We cling to that promise today. And we remind ourselves of the power of the gospel for those who believe. Let's pray together.